This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, so we'd been doing the Texas thing for, I don't know, a year, year and a half maybe, seasonally. You know, I wouldn't down there all the time, but we'd get a trip, I'd fly down, we'd do it. It was just another day, another crossing for Eldon Kidd and his smuggling partner, Tim Burson. So we had brought two people from the town of Bukias and put them in a motel in Midland, on the 10 there. At that time, you could go across the river. There was boats there. If you were like a college kid, you could take a boat and go in and go and have a beer and sit in a restaurant and then come back. And there was never a problem passing back and forth. The journey hadn't been easy. The night before, Eldon and Tim had met their clients, 18 in total, in Boquillas, Mexico. They then guided them on a three-hour hike to the Rio Grande River. Once there, they waded across under cover of darkness and camped out until morning. Once across, they ran their reliable decoy van scheme, utilizing two vans, one that looked like a smuggler's van, which acted as a decoy, and another that appeared to be a legitimate tour van, inside which their clients would nervously ride into their new lives. It had been working flawlessly for over a year, As the old saying goes, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. As usual, they didn't encounter any resistance. It was smooth sailing all the way to the motel outside Midland, Odessa. It was called the Fern. It was a big, giant pool, and we'd been swimming, and they were all showered up and had new client clothes on, and we were going to make sure they had plenty of food and they were taken care of. And a lot of times we'd buy them socks and shoes, so they had new socks and shoes on. So they weren't just a flag for anybody who was looking for signs of passing the people. The final step was to transport their clients from the motel in Midland to the nearby airport, where with false identification, they would board a flight to some other American frontier, where their new lives would officially begin. There's something so satisfying about a simple plan well executed, about knowing every motel vending machine or local fast food joint, every highway exit sign, knowing every single detail by heart. Eldon was no longer changing it up for every run. It had gotten too risky and the tried and true methods were still getting the job done. But there is risk in repetition. Eldon and Tim didn't know it yet, but the gnarled hands of destiny were closing around them. Yes, this trip would be different than the others. Very different indeed. Because this one would be their last. This is American Coyote. I'm your host, Andrea Lopez Villafaña. In our ninth episode, 
the Border Patrol closes in on Eldon's operations. Months before Eldon and Tim's fateful run, in an otherwise unsuspecting office park in San Diego, a photo was printed out. That photo, taken from a database at the DMV, was then sent, faxed and emailed, to multiple other offices around the country. And everywhere that photo was received, it too was printed out and tacked up on bulletin boards, taped to walls, hung in cubicles. The offices were those of the U.S. Border Patrol, branches all across the Southland. And the photo was of Eldon Kidd, the proverbial white whale of the Immigration and Naturalization Services. After skirting capture by border agents repeatedly through his myriad of schemes, this American coyote was now a wanted man. But as Eldon and Tim prepped for the final leg of their latest crossing on an otherwise uneventful Wednesday along the Texas border in the spring of 2001, neither had any idea. So it was business as usual for the guys, doing what they always did, making sure their latest clients were fed and freshly clothed, a kindness that would ultimately lead to their downfall. This time I stopped in Fort Stockton and I'm in Walmart, Kmart, buying shoes and shirts and, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken, getting, you know, big buckets. And one of the patrol agents that had chased me down in Mexico, or close to the Mexican border, recognized me. What Eldon and Tim didn't know was that a BOLO, a law enforcement acronym for Be On The Lookout, had been put out on a man matching Eldon's description after he had some close calls with other agents along the border. They often would put up what is called a BOLO, Be On The Lookout For, poster on their wall. If you see this guy again, you know, keep an eye on him. So the way I understand it, they looked at me, decided, let's see what this guy is up to. Since it was one single person, you know, getting three buckets of chicken was kind of a a clue. Eldon's size and stature was not ideal for blending in. He stood ahead above most. And by this time in 2001, he was sporting a shaved head. He was, quite simply, unmistakable. That's how he got recognized. I can change my appearance. I can put on a ball cap like you. I can change how I walk and put a dress. I can change my appearance. He can't. He's Eldon. That's it. What are you going to do? Put a dress on him. There's Eldon in a dress. Still, they were oblivious, unaware that Eldon had been spotted near the motel, unaware that the mechanisms of justice were already spinning, zeroing in on their location. And after the clients were fed and clothed, It was time to move. From nearly a block away, 
agents observed that 18 undocumented immigrants moved from their motel rooms into the waiting vans. They had their reasonable suspicion, and they were about to land their white whale. So as we left the motel and got on the, the Highway 10, we were surrounded by higher patrol, undercover cars. I mean, there was a lot of cars, there, maybe a dozen cop cars at that time. Lights flashing. They pulled Eldon over first, and I just kept going, thinking I was going to get away. I was going to get away, get away. And then the high patrol came in behind me. I was placed under arrest. The arresting officers took statements from all of the apprehended migrants, and each gave the same story. They had made arrangements with Tim and Elton to be transported from Mexico into the United States for a flat fee of $2,000 each. This time, there would be no tricking their way out of the situation. And it was here that Elton learned just how big a fish he was to the border authorities. Unbeknownst to me, all this time, things were being compiled and they're building a case so when I was finally caught in Texas, here's your file, bud. We know about you. I mean, they wanted to catch me with something good or big or more interesting. And that's it. However, United States authorities are not Mexican authorities. A stark difference that Tim experienced firsthand. When I first got arrested, the higher patrol down there, he put the cuffs on me really hard, like really hard. And he said, you guys think we're stupid. And I said, listen, these cuffs are too tight. And he goes, they're just fine. Then when the border patrol took us over, after they took possession of us. The one guy says, he says, well, I can let you guys out of those cuffs. He says, but, but don't try to run because these, these boys have guns and they will shoot you. The two coyotes were put into lockup in Texas as they awaited sentencing. Eldon had been in this position before, but for Tim, it was his first time behind bars. And he was rightly terrified. And they put us in the same cell together. Well, there was a guy who had been in jail for six months there. And he had the whole cell cowed. Everyone was afraid of him. So they bring the, the, the cornflakes around about 5.30. And so we just sit down and start eating corn. Well, this guy had a set up that he had to say grace for the whole cell before anybody ate. We didn't know that. And then for some reason, he was focusing on me. So the whole time I'm in there, I'm thinking he's over there sharpening his toothbrush into a point to stick it in my eye or something. You know, I didn't know, I didn't know. And Ellen says, now nah, he's, he's, you don't have anything to worry about. Fortunately, Tim's best friend was with him, a 6'5", 230-pound man who had survived two years in the roughest prison in Mexico. It's good to have a guy like Eldon watching your back. That was Tim's first two weeks in jail. And he was absolutely terrified. I kind of had to watch over him a little bit. There was somebody in the cell that had everybody getting up, saying prayers and doing exercises. Like, they love to have these little routines going. So I, I told him there's no routine. So here's our routine from now on. And then, but I just started slapping him around. I said, this is our routine every day, starting now. And so he 
let me out, let me out, and he's out, and, and we had some peace there. While the two men had successfully warded off their first confrontation in prison, they still had no idea how long they would be locked up. By this time, word of Eldon's capture had made its way back to Riverside, back to his family. Eldon's daughter Tammy remembers that moment. It was a nighttime phone call. Like, there's a phone in my mom's, my mom's room, and I was in her room at the time. He had been arrested again. Phone calls in the middle of the night are never, like, a great thing. By this time, the family had become so accustomed to living on the edge that when news finally came of Eldon's arrest, they were numb. My mom would always say, no news is good news when it came to my dad. <laughs> so, because he'd be gone for long stretches of time and we'd, you know, we'd start to worry, but don't worry, don't worry. No, no news is good news. She never could control him. So I was like, okay, let's deal with this now. Almost like we were primed for it. I'm like, okay, well, it had to happen eventually. And his other kids, now older and jaded by their father's illegal and unpredictable career, felt the same way. I was newly married. Having my own world at that point, I tried to just distance myself from the up and down drama of him going in and going out. And I had a full-time job as a nurse, a night shift, and I was disconnecting. I grew up with this as, as a pattern through my childhood. So, you know, your emotional response to these situations you know, gets less and less and less. So I think I was desensitized to it to a certain degree, and it was disappointment, but it was, it was my normal. Back in Texas, in prison, Eldon and Tim awaited their fate, passing their time as best they could. You know, you have one or two days a week, you'd have an exercise period. You can go in the yard and throw the basketball around and run. And uh, Eldon would take the trash can and fill up with water. We're doing weightlifting in the jail. And it's like the TV's on, there's a soccer game on there in Spanish 24 hours a day. And it's just, you know, it's, 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 it's nerve wracking. But Tim's incarceration would soon come to an end. Due to the fact that he had no priors, he was allowed on on bail. Eldon, on the other hand, wasn't so lucky. Well, his, his family was concerned about getting him out, but I was kind of part of that family thing too because I was his, I was his partner. And so his daughter, Eileen, I remember her going and paying $10,000 somewhere to, for the process to me to get released. And I was in jail for 28 days in Texas there. Without Tim, Eldon once again had to weather the storm in prison alone. And it was during this time that Eldon Kidd would come face to face with the man who had been pursuing him since returning to Crossing. His name was Ackerman. And he was a Border Patrol agent basically because he could speak Chinese. But his Chinese was not good, I'm told. And thank goodness that he was incompetent because he, he would have got me a long time ago. But he was the guy that really wanted to get me bad. We reached out to Ackerman, who confirmed the relationship with Eldon, but ultimately declined to be interviewed for the podcast. 
While Eldon's contempt for the man is clear in hindsight, back in the summer of 2001, Agent Ackerman held all the cards, and Eldon knew it. And the news that Agent Ackerman brought for Eldon was devastating. They said, it's about seven years that you're looking at. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. To Eldon, seven years was an eternity. But in 2001, there were greater forces at play in the Border Patrol and around the southern border in general. In reality, Eldon was just one small cog in the massive machine patrolling and regulating the U.S.-Mexico border. And while the very nature of Customs and Border Enforcement lends itself to corruption, after a sudden influx of money and equipment, the corruption had gotten far worse under Operation Gatekeeper. I was raised in Alabama. I went to Auburn University. And when I graduated, I, I was expected to go to law school. I graduated with honors at the top of my class. We first met Jen Budd in the fourth episode of our series. And the story of her time as a Border Patrol agent is a nightmarish look into just how corrupt the institution was at the end of the 20th century. We had a class of about 60, 65, somewhere around there. And six of us were women. But I, I didn't think much of it. I just expected it to be a variety of different types of people. The very first thing I noticed was, and now we term it the rape culture, but back then we would just call it, you know, sexism or misogyny. You know, from the very first day, that was very evident. It was either the first day or the second day. They, they separated the men and the women. And they told the women, they told us that, you know, we need to talk to you about female things. And we're all kind of like, what? You know, this feels like fifth grade sex ed. What's going on? And they had some female agent come in and she's telling us how to wear our hair and our makeup and not to wear dangly earrings. We found out later on that night that the guys were talking about, they were telling them that women didn't belong in the Border Patrol. And that the only way that we ever graduated was because we would file sexual assault charges against them or harassment charges against them and force the Border Patrol to let us pass so that we wouldn't sue them. Within the first week, the women who were trainees in the classes above you who are about to graduate would come to our dorm rooms at night and they would tell us what to be aware of. They would warn us that we shouldn't drink on the campus bar because we would be drugged. 
that graduation nights were dangerous because the men and the instructors would drug a woman's drink and then they force her to play a, a game called the Game of Smiles. And it's a sex game where basically she ends up getting raped. And it happened while I was at the academy. A CBS News investigation found in the last six years, at least 21 Customs or Border Patrol agents have been indicted or pled guilty to sexual offenses both on and off duty. I had gone to the campus bar one night after studying to get a burger and a beer. And I was walking back to my dorm and one of my classmates came up to me and said, hey, let me walk you home. It's not a good idea for a woman to walk in the dark. As an older woman, and obviously going through that experience, I would be like, that's a sign, but I didn't see it then. We were talking as he lived down the way from me. His dorm was down the way from mine. When we got to the back of my place, you know, that's when he attacked me. He probably had 100 pounds on me. I remember trying to, you know, use the stuff I had learned in the Border Patrol Academy and the training, the fighting techniques. You know, it just didn't even phase him. The next day, I didn't know if anybody knew about it. I didn't know if he told anybody about it. I thought, he'll just keep it secret. I just, I didn't want to ruin my chances of getting this job. I really needed this job. None of my classmates said anything about, my face was, I had a bruised, like a little black eye, and I had a busted lip. And I had bruised ribs, which they couldn't see, but... I eventually ended up having to do my physical training class that was two hours that day. And he was in that class. For that day, they had decided that we were going to do defensive tactics. And they made me box him. They were laughing and thought it was funny and... He picked me up probably no less than three times and just threw me into the wall. And every time that he punched me, he would go for the places that he had punched before. And I didn't stop going at him until they blew the whistle. Part of me felt like I have to survive this. I have to get past training, I have to become a real agent. And then when I became a real agent, you know, I set out to prove that I was a good agent. You know, they kept doing things to me thinking I would leave. And I'm like, you got to really get up early in the morning. <laughs> I mean, you have no idea how tough I am, you know, and I just, I just kept at it. Jen became a U.S. Border Patrol officer in 1994, shortly after Operation Gatekeeper was instituted. Over the next six years through the turn of the century, she saw the border change before her eyes, much like Eldon did, just from the other side. As Agent Bud mentioned in our fourth episode, she rose in the ranks of the Border Patrol in the San Diego sector. During this time, enforcement ramped up 
on all illegal crossings with a primary focus on finding and stopping the importation of drugs. However, the higher up she rose and the more she learned about the inner workings of the Border Patrol itself, clues of deeper corruption became evident. Campo was pretty well known for a lot of drugs coming through. And when the new boss of the station came in, after a couple of years, he, he changed our operations on how we deployed to the field. He demanded that we only take a paved road down to the border in this area that was normally used for drugs. All of us who had been in for a while were like, wait a minute, <laughs> yeah, this doesn't sound right. So I had done a narcotics detail with the DEA out there. And they had eventually gotten to the point where they trusted me and told me that their real purpose was that they heard that somebody high up in the station was organizing the smuggling of, of drugs coming across. And I was like, and so, you know, there's just these little bits and pieces. I decided I was going to open an investigation on my boss. So he found out I was doing that. And he admitted to me that he was the one who was organizing the smuggling of drugs into San Diego County Campo. And he threatened me. And he just said that he would have me sitting behind a desk the rest of my career. And I went back to sector. I told my boss, I want a whistleblow. I'm going to go to the FBI. I want to talk to the DEA. And he says, I think you misunderstood. And this is the thing about the Border Patrol. And then you say the culture of corruption, but it's also this culture of cover-up. We went back and forth arguing. And then he says to me, my boss at Intel, at Sector, says, we are going to put out a job here at Sector for a supervisory position. So this is a step above me. And you're going to put in for it, and everybody will put in for it, and nobody will know that we've pre-selected you for this. So he was offering me a promotion to keep my mouth shut. And I said, I am not your girl for this. That's not the way I roll. This isn't small potatoes here. This is big, you know. Agents die because of people smuggling drugs. and We can't have this. He just told me to think about it and sent me home. As I'm walking in the door, there's a message on my answering machine. And they said, you know, you got to come up to Campo and do a midnight shift overtime. But we weren't doing overtime now. The crossings were low. There was no need for overtime. And so I had an idea that this, you know, is probably being set up. So I made sure I had my vest. And I had plenty of ammo and stuff. Still, it's like, it just seems ridiculous, you know? I mean, it couldn't possibly be this, right? I went out there and they put me on a stationary position like 20 yards off the fence in the drug zone in this zone four. That's like a training position or a junior agent position. And it's a really bad position that you can't see anything in. So at like three in the morning, 
I can't see anything but a flash coming from the little hole in the fence. And I realize it's automatic weapon fire. After attempting to blow the whistle on a superior who was organizing the smuggling of drugs over the U.S.-Mexico border, Agent Jen Budd had been assigned a midnight shift on a remote post in an apparent setup as retaliation for her investigation. She was alone in her vehicle when things took a turn. So at like three in the morning, there's this flash coming from a little hole in the fence. It's automatic weapon fire. It's landing like right next to my driver's side door and ricocheting off the rocks next to me. Even then, I I would be shooting into Mexico. There's families that live right there. You know, I'm not going to shoot at something I can't see. The best option for me was to get out of there. I kicked my truck in reverse. Then I flew northbound, probably around 200 yards. And I knew they couldn't see me. And the whole time I'm, you know, on the radio saying shots fired and asking for backup. Now the whole night I've been talking to agents in my zone, no problem. And nobody now is answering me that I'm getting shot and I need backup. So I call for the supervisor in my zone and he's not answering. And then I call the station, Campo station, and nobody answers there. And there's a permanent supervisor inside and there's people inside working and nobody's answering. It's just dead silence on the radio. I'm kind of in this like dirt cut out with brush surrounding my truck and I have my lights out and I'm just like, what am I gonna do? (laughs) Is this really what I think it is? All of a sudden this car's coming. I can see him coming down Tierra del Sol, the paved road. You can see the headlights. If you're in law enforcement, you start to get to where you can recognize cars by their headlights. I could tell it was probably a Ford Expedition, which is what my boss, the boss of the station, drove. And it was him. And he pulls up his white G-Ride. And I have my gun on this guy, but he can't tell. He doesn't know I have my gun on him because it's under the windowsill. And he says, Real casually, he says, I I heard on the radio that that you were calling for help and nobody was responding, so I thought I would come out and see if I could help you. I just didn't say anything, and he he looks at me and he says, have you learned your lesson yet? He says, because, you know, next time they're not going to miss. I just drove away. I drove northbound on the East Indian Road, and I popped out on Highway 94, and I went back to the station and turned my keys in, and I went home that night and told my wife I was going to resign. I remember I'm, I'm standing in the, like, living room, and I'm standing there in uniform, and I'm taking my gun belt off, and I'm, I'm telling her what's going on, and I go, I don't even fucking believe in what we do. I resigned from the force in June of 2001. I just was so angry about how it ended and I realized I had PTSD from the Border Patrol. 
and from the rape and everything. Just every day in the Border Patrol was constant fight or flight, but not because of the migrants that I dealt with. It was constant fight or flight because of the agents I had to work with. The fallout from her time in the Border Patrol is something Jen struggled with over the next two decades. But there is a silver lining. I just had a, a lot of soul searching that I had to do. So that's, that's how I originally got involved with the Southern Border Community Coalition. It seems like it happened, you know, in only, what, like seven years since I left the patrol, you know, where I was this hardened agent and, and didn't give a lot of leeway to the migrants I arrested to then I'm advocating for these migrants. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just completely flipped from being, you know, La Mingra in green, the green monster, to now advocating for immigrant rights and accountability of the Border Patrol. In her time as an advocate, Jen has heard too many stories. Stories about corruption, about intimidation and assault, and about the mistreatment of migrants. The Border Patrol has been horrible to migrants since 1924 when it first started. And it's it doesn't matter who's in charge. It's been horrible and racist. And the very first Border Patrol agents were sons of the Confederacy, and it has had KKK members in it. It is a racist organization with a rape culture. It is misogynistic. It is corrupt beyond belief. I believe that it needs to be torn down we're using a law enforcement tool to handle what is a humanitarian problem. The Border Patrol is a law enforcement tool. They cannot handle asylum, which is a humanitarian issue. What we should have been doing since the days of George W., and especially during Obama, and now, is building up the asylum system. You know, the, the answer isn't to make asylum seekers criminals. The answer is to build the asylum system so that we can do our records checks as people come to us and make sure, you know, that we're not bringing people in that, that are wanted in certain areas or whatever, and then have a decent immigration system and an asylum system that helps them become Americans, that helps them find their way in our country. But back when Jen was turning over her badge and resigning from the Border Patrol, Back when the corruption was reaching a fever pitch, that's the exact same time Eldon Kidd was sitting in a Texas prison, awaiting his sentence. However, something was about to happen that would change Eldon's life, the Border Patrol, and the world forever. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Bryant Gumbel. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We don't know if it was a commercial aircraft. We have another copy. There is the second plane, another passenger plane hitting the World Trade Center. These pictures are frightening indeed. These are just minutes between each other. There was another major explosion. The, build, the building itself, literally the top of it, came down, sending smoke and debris everywhere. But it is a surreal and devastating scene over here, something like I've never seen before. After 
Securing the border was now a top national security priority, and that meant corrupt agents who could easily be bought if the price were right were a national security threat. With the eyes of the country turning back toward the border, they needed help, and they'd find it in some unlikely places. I stayed there in that prison in Texas for three months, about three months. I got a visit from Ackerman and his partner. They said, we need to make a deal with you. It's 9-11. There's a group called the Uyghurs who are Chinese Muslims. And uh, we need some help with that, among other things. They were mainly concerned with ferreting out corrupt border agents. They wanted me to try and find them. And I asked them, how do I do that? And they said, well, you're the coyote. You're the creative one. Find a way, or you're going back to jail. We will be your parole agents for five years. And if you don't perform, you come right back here. And then that started a new five-year chapter of my related smuggling career. So then I went from being a coyote to working with the Border Patrol. That's next time on the exciting conclusion of American Coyote. If you would like to learn more about how to help with the immigration crisis along the U.S.-Mexico border, check out organizations like Texas Civil Rights Project at txcivilrights.org, Border Angels at borderangels.org, Young Center for Immigrant Children's Rights at theyoungcenter.org, or Raices at raicestexas.org, r-a-i-c-e-s-texas.org. American Coyote is created, written, and produced by Joshua Schaefer and Eli Chorus of Pegalo Pictures. Executive produced by Jason Hoke and produced by Andrew Richards of Imperative Entertainment. And produced by Alvin Cowan. Original music for the series is composed by Joshua Klebe. The original corrido, The Ballad of Eldon Kid, written and performed by Daniel Schaefer and Los Two Guys out of Austin, Texas. Assistant editing by Max Drankpole. Sound recording by Nick Sinakis and Matt Stouter. Sound editing by Joshua Schaefer and Nick Sinakis. Sound design and sound mixing by Craig Platty. Poster design and graphics by Jeff Quinn. Production legal by Sean Fawcett of Raymond Legal PC and Davis Wright Tremaine, LLP. Host record by Deborah Reeves and Signature Sound in San Diego, California. Please subscribe, download, and share these episodes and follow us on social media for extra content and updates. I'm your host, Andrea Lopez Villafaña. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>